Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Unfortunately, life on the whole for the first world countries has become so incredibly easy and so incredibly boring that we actually dream up these ridiculous challenges as something to do. Yo. G'day, gang. I'm your host, Bram Connolly, and this then is my podcast. This week on the Warrior You podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Sasha Fulton, PhD. I also sound like I'm talking with a mouthful of marbles. Anyway, Sasha is one of the humblest people you will ever meet and also one of the most accomplished. I'm truly starting to understand the importance of having wider skill focus in life, being a generalist rather than a specialist. And Sasha is helping me to understand that. Sasha's undergraduate degree was in human movement studies and her PhD focused on movement characteristics of Paralympic swimmers an area where a wide focus would surely be an advantage, you would think. Her academic achievements and support to the highly successful Australian Paralympic swimming team is only the tip of the iceberg. Sasha has also completed a marathon. Yeah, that's a life achievement for many people. And a handful of sprint distance and half distance triathlons. And eight Ironman triathlons, one of which was Kona in Hawaii. If that isn't enough... To prove her legitimacy as an athlete, she's also completed two solo Rottnest Island swims. And bear in mind, these are 20-kilometre crossings each time. And she's also walked the Camino de Santiago, which is a pilgrim's trail stretching 1,700 kilometres through France to Spain. The Camino was the birthplace of her business, Peak Preparation. Sasha now uses her depth of academic study, personal experiences and vast network to assist coaches businesses and athletes in their preparation for whatever their missions might be. Honestly, this is a great podcast. There's lots of information in here. It's about an hour and 20 minutes long, so you might have to break it up into some bits to listen to it. But you will get so much out of this from preparation for sport, for mental resilience. We talk a little bit about special forces selection, stepping up to the starting line of something. We talk about the Camino de Santiago, Ironman, swimming, my God, it's just, it's huge. It's a gift that keeps on giving this podcast. Now, before we kick off, you know I have to do some housekeeping. And you must know by now that I'm going to be doing a live show in Sydney, 6th of December. The countdown is on to the Warrior U podcast. It's live. Grab your ticket. Be part of the recording. I'll have some brilliant guests and we'll be talking leadership, resilience, human optimization. You'll have the chance to ask us questions and be part of an interactive show. It's taking place on the 6th of December in the Sydney CBD. Tickets are only $50 at the moment and available at www.events.warrioru.com.au or you can just email me, bram at warrioru.com.au and I'll take your money. Um, Yeah, come along. It's going to be a great night. Now, you all know I like coffee. It represents more to me than just a brew. I ruminate over coffee. Ruminate. I like that word. I've been using it a lot lately. I think about my next steps. I use caffeine to escape 
and I use it to be present. It's to relax with friends or a straight double shot as a pre-workout. It's an important part of who I am, to be fair. Ironside Coffee is not only a great sponsor of the podcast, they are also a company that I feel aligned to. Their product is brilliant. It's good coffee. It's sourced from the finest coffee growers, roasted with care and distributed fast. Go check out their website and see for yourself how fast they can get the product to your door. Ironside Coffee is a veteran-owned company. They're based in Canberra. They're supporting the Warrior U live podcast as well as the Echelon Front Muster in December. Speaking of the Echelon Front Muster, see what I did there? Get some, that's the company's name. They're the Australian distributor of the Origin Labs Jocko Willink line of supplements. Check out their website to learn more about the product line of nutrition, workout and maintenance supplements and be sure to put in the code WARRIORU for 10% off the marked price. www.getsome.com.au And let me know what you think of their products. I actually think it, I honestly, that stuff's good. I'm using it at the moment. I've binned most of the other supplements I've been taking other than creatine. And yeah, and I'm slamming the Jocko Willick line of products. I think it's pretty good. Right, just a reminder that the Aussie Strength Clearance Sale is on October 10th and 11th. They have over $2 million worth of strength equipment for sale. There's savings of up to 60% on some items. Go check out their website for amazing deals. Reach out direct to them. Make sure you tell them that I sent you so that they keep supporting the podcast. Um, that's www.aussiestrength.com.au. And then, why not check out Sword Australia's website? When was the last time you went and had a look at Sword Australia's website? www.swordaustralia.com. Do you know I used to allocate one-third of my fortnightly pay to equipment from Sword? I'm not even joking. Um, they have products that meet the needs of anyone in the ADF. Go check them out for tactical gear. Honestly, good stuff. And my mate Luke Fegan owns the company, so why not? Right. Do you know the Warrior U podcast now reached over 150,000 downloads, over 275-star reviews? And this week I'm reading a review from Dave Pistons. Pure listening pleasure. Great, great uh, tagline. Hi, Bram. Great work with your series. Every episode is a perfect balance of you sharing your experiences while not taking the focus from your guests and what they have to say. A tricky balancing act, but you seem to be a natural at it. Great work, Dave. Thanks, Dave. You're in the draw for the Echelon Front Master ticket worth over $2,500, drawn October 31st. You know what? It's really hard to get that balance right because sometimes they're so interesting, some of the people that come on here. that, And, yeah, and obviously with my personality, I want to jump right in there and tell people what I'm thinking and it's difficult to balance that, to come up with an idea, to listen to what they have to say and then not spruik off in your own rambling like I quite often do you'd be surprised though dave how much shit i actually edit out um because my own opinions sometimes are nothing compared to the wealth of experience that people bring as you'll find with sasha's podcast today righto without further ado let's get into the show i'm just looking at your business card okay dr sasha fulton where's the phd written on here well, oh, it is, it is. It's accredited it sports is. scientist and athlete preparation specialist, PhD, sports physiology. Awesome. What does that mean? It means that I'm not a real doctor. 
<laughs> if you have a heart attack now, you're on your own. Does a doctor have a PhD though? A real doctor? No, no, mm. they don't. So that's interesting, this isn't is it? The thing. Mm. So, so my an dad, MD is a doctor. Is a real doctor. Mm. He's a medical practitioner. Right. Actually, he's not a doctor. But he doesn't have a PhD. He doesn't have a PhD. So, you, so, so, so you'd be so much more qualified to do anything. So much more qualified. <laughs> but it gets very tricky because when I'm on the plane and mm. somebody does have a heart attack <laughs> and they ask if there's a doctor on board, <laughs> that doesn't I've end got well. to consider whether I put my hand up or not. It doesn't end well. But I don't think that statistics are going to help that person, so I tend not to. Um, look, I reckon you're fascinating. This is going to be a great fun talk and for the next 35, 40, 50 minutes, hour, hour and a half, whatever... Um, whatever it takes us to get this done. But just tell me a little bit about your, obviously I know, tell the listeners a little bit about your background. You're editing all of this, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, background. Um, where do you want me to start? Uh, probably high school. What were you good at? High school. No, high school I was actually, we had this conversation about being average mm. and um, I still maintain that I was very average at school. Mm, okay. Didn't quite excel at anything. Mm. Um. But I don't know, I probably had a few life-changing moments in school. Mm. Um, Dad pulled us out in when I was in Year 7 mm. and went and took a locum in Guernsey in the mm. Channel Islands. Yeah, right. So I lived there for five months mm. or so. Mm. Had a, um, a fa- I mean, the, the whole trip was absolutely incredible. Yeah. And being in Guernsey, I was quite the, um, you know, I was like a native, an, an not native, exotic species. Of course, yeah. Uh, you know, this blonde Australian mm. girl. Yeah, yeah. And I've always wanted to go there because um, uh, there's a book written... Uh, there is. ...where um, the devil... Oh, what is it again? It's where Eagle... The Eagle's Nest or something like that. It's one of those books. Someone will correct me. Anyway, but, um, yeah, they have a German German garrison fort in the Guernsey Islands, the cha- in the Channel Islands, sorry, in Guernsey. Yeah. And I've always wanted to go there since then to see it. Yeah. And the new, um, the potato peel, um, oh, goodness, fabulous movie. Yeah, right. Only fairly recent. Yeah, okay. Um, there's a book and things. And, yeah, yeah no, Guernsey was under German yeah. occupation yeah, um, yeah. in the Second World War. Yeah. Um, and it's a, yeah, look, it's got a lot of history. Mm. Um, the whole group of Channel Islands is quite, mm. yeah, quite an interesting And a tax space. haven. An absolute tax haven. I'm, I'm <laughs> so going. That's it. We're going there. I don't know if that's what Dad was there for. Anyway, it was a great opportunity, but it meant that um, I was a little bit of an outsider when I came back. Yeah. So that was probably that was a little bit of a battle. Yeah. Um, and I did find, yeah, sort of school. I didn't excel at school. Um, I don't think I. I don't know. School was a very um, lots of groups formed at school, and I never really. I, I've never really conformed to being in a group. Yeah, uh, right. I'm not sort of mm. – I'm a bit of a drifter. I'm not really a follower. If mm. there's something that I don't like, I just won't do it. Mm. Um, so I was probably a little bit different at school and I think it was only really after school that I started kind of more challenging myself and finding my feet. And Did you go to uni back here? Um, went to uni in New South Wales. All oh, right. So um, went – I took a year off. I did get my gap year in the UK. Mm. So all of our extended family are from England. So I went there for a year in 1997 and worked as a, a mistress in a boarding school. Oh, I was in the UK in 97. No, you weren't. I was. I was with the Royal Marines at uh, Limston for a year. Hold on. You're only five years older, so you're 23. Yeah, yeah. About then. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Yep. Yeah. Um, that was 
that was a really interesting time. And the UK, they don't tend to... I was only 17 when I left school. Mm. So the, and, the, and the UK has like a year 13. Right. So I had... There were 18, 19-year-olds that I was sort of supervising to go to bed and stuff. So it was a bit mm. awkward at times. But no, that was a pretty... Um, that was... That was a, it was quite a challenging year, actually, because a lot of the borders that we had was Piper's Corner School in High Wycombe, and a lot of the borders that we had were, um, um, what do you call it? They were live-in borders. They mm. were there all weekends, mm. all holidays. Parents were off overseas working, um, and you kind of become second mum to these kids. And, and what, were you, what were you studying at the time? No study. Okay. No, just no a gap study, year. Just a gap year. Yeah. Mind the gap, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Under underground, yeah. lots of travel around Europe. Um, you know, a little bit of a time for me to probably, you know, be a little bit loose mm. in in a way, in only a way that, mm. and I'm not very good at being loose. Mm. But um, yeah, lots of travel. Just letting your hair down a little bit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. But amazing opportunity with these kids. Really hard to leave them at the end of the year. Mm. Came back to Sydney straight into. Um, a undergraduate degree, mm. so human movement studies at the University of Technology, Sydney. Mm. That was a three-year degree, a little bit of a fluffy degree. Mm. wasn't quite the scientific degree that I kind of thought it was going to be. Mm. So I took the opportunity to do a um, an honours year straight after that. Mm. So that was sort of four years honours. Sorry, it was just the one year, so four-year course in the end. Mm. Um, and then after that, I actually got a full-time job at the at Royal North Shore Hospital. Mm. My dad was a doctor there at the time. My mum was a patient there at the time. Mm. And I ran the staff recreation centre. Mm. But I'd reached out during this time. I decided that the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport, was going to be my calling. That was going to be where I was going to work. Mm. So I reached out to the head of physiology at the time, Dr. Alan Hahn, and I mean, when I say reached out, I had no connection to him. I, I simply just said, "Hey, just letting you know that I'm me, and you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work for you one day." And he was probably like, "Who is this fruitcake?" Anyway, about a year later, um, they were doing a, they had these um, PhD scholarships. Um, that they were running and Dr Alan Hahn was sort of the advocator of these scholarships and he contacted me and said, look, we've got one more place um, left for um, a PhD candidate for, for this intake. Mm. I think you should apply. So I did and um, I got it and moved to shortly moved to the Sunshine Coast. My PhD was a, a mix of the University of the Sunshine Coast, the Australian Institute of Sport mm. and Swimming Australia, specifically yeah, right. with the Paralympic swimmers. Yeah, cool. So that was pretty good. That would come with some challenges, I think. It came with some challenges because, um, and I had this conversation with someone the other day, PhDs, Nicola Ward actually, PhDs used to be what you did at the end of your career, mm. you know, you, you, you did your career for 40, 50, 60 years and then right at the end of your career when you'd found that one niche question that nobody had answered, you then went and did your PhD research in it. Yeah, right. Now we've turned the tables and now we actually ask students to have a PhD before we even employ them. Crazy. It is actually crazy. Yeah. So I, was, I had no experience in anything really mm. 
And um, suddenly I found myself doing a PhD with swimming, which I wasn't, I mean, I was a triathlete myself, but I wasn't uber familiar with pool swimming Mm. Um, and the Paralympic team, no doubt. Yeah. So, um, you know, probably the first year of my PhD took just learning about swimming, learning about Paralympic athletes and, um, yeah, it was tough, but they taught me a lot. And what did you do your PhD in? What was your thesis in? So the thesis was performance characteristics of Paralympic swimming. Yeah, right. Um, fairly broad topic. Mm. Um, and obviously we, we broke that down into five different research projects. At the time, there hadn't been a huge amount of work that had been done in Paralympic swimming. So it was a little bit of an open field. And it... Um, yeah, I can only imagine that like a, an able-bodied person swimming has certain characteristics that carries across all able-bodied people, whereas with a Paralympian, you're talking about so many variabilities dependent on, on what their... You allowed to say disability? I'm not, I'm, yeah, you are. Yeah, I don't know these... I'm, I'm always careful now because I don't know what I don't know. No, no. But yeah, dependent on, on what the characteristics are of that disability would then change things dramatically. It does, and I think, I mean, we didn't even really get the chance to delve deep down into the physiology, like the real difference in physiology between an arm amputee and a leg amputee and cerebral palsy, which which would have been fascinating. Um, and also you're dealing with, you're suddenly dealing with very small numbers as well. So it's not quite like having, you know a huge pool of athletes to work with, you're dealing with very, very small numbers, which made my statistics um, a bit of a challenge at times. And um, we sort of employed a a slightly different um, approach with the statistics because of that Mm. to counter for the small numbers. What made you go into – what made you decide that was going to be your thing? Well, this was the thing. I didn't get a choice. Mm. I applied for this PhD scholarship and there happened to be one spot left, which was Paralympic swimming. Um, so wow. it was this case of knowing absolutely nothing about the sport. So if you want a PhD, here's, here's the area I want you to be a specialist in for the rest of your life. Pretty well. Wow. Pretty well. Crazy. Um, and, of course, it hasn't turned out that way. So I'm no, you know, I wouldn't call myself, I'm not a specialist in Paralympic swing. I didn't get the opportunity to continue doing that for the rest of my life. Oh, well, no, we'll get to that uh, because because <laughs> you're, you're, you are the We've humblest gone. person I've met. You're 100% a specialist in this area and we will get to that in a minute. But um, so, so basically the, the why of all this is you wanted to do a PhD and you were told this is the area. I don't even know that I wanted to do a PhD. Yeah. I just knew that I wasn't quite finished studying. Um, and look, again, I think there's, um, you know, a PhD is, at the end of the day, it's drive and determination. It, it, it's not necessarily... I mean, I wasn't fantastic. My statistician will tell you <laughs> that I was not fantastic at statistics. Um, but somebody told me very early on in my PhD, a colleague of mine, Dr Hamilton Lee, um, and he told me very early on in my PhD, never discount the time that you spend getting to know the athletes and the coaches because at the end of the day they are your um you know they are your subject cohort and if you have their trust if you have them on board you're going to be able to collect this data the data that you need a lot easier and I really took that advice on board 
And so for the first 12 months, I really spent a lot of time getting to know the sport, getting to know the athletes and the coaches and kind of building up that trust. Yep. And um, I think it was, you know, it was probably the start of this whole networking space, if you like. Yeah, on we went, travelled the world for different um, different team competitions and um, got to two Paralympic Games. I chose to not be based at the AIS. I chose to be based on the Sunshine Coast. Um, two reasons. The head coach of the Paralympic team at the time was living in Brisbane mm. and one of my PhD supervisors, Dr Brendan Burkett, was a Paralympic swimmer himself um, and sports scientist for the team. He was working out at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Right, okay. Whereas my second PhD supervisor was at the AIS, mm-hmm. but I actually had I had more affinity with Queensland at the time. So okay. I chose to be based there for the first two and a half years and I concurrently did my research. Before we get into where that um, research sort of led you from from a, um employment perspective, what did you find out through the study that could be applied to human optimization with regards to anyone? There must have been some things that you drew, drew on. As I said, we had five research projects that we were looking at at the time. So my first research project was kind of almost the most fascinating one. It was one in progression variability of race statistics. And you can start getting... There's a statistic called the smallest worthwhile change, which Mm. once you've started measuring um, multiple performances in multiple athletes over multiple competitions, you start being able to understand what it takes, the percent that it takes to actually win a medal. Right. And what you can do with that is you can then say, well, if I come in with an intervention now that's going to improve performance by this amount, mm. is that enough to win a medal? Right. If that makes sense. It does make sense, yeah. yeah. And, I, and, I, and it makes sense to me from a triathlon perspective because you change certain things that don't seem like very much. The second, third order effect down the line can be massive. Exactly, mm. exactly. So that was a really crucial first research project mm. to get an understanding of what it was going to take to win a medal actually with these different disabilities yeah. and in the in the classification system that existed at the time and is and is similar now. You were the 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 Paralympic swimming team secret weapon. I think the um the head coach and my my supervisor were the the biggest secret weapons. Yeah. But um yeah, yeah. I don't know, maybe I was the the little mm. person behind the scenes mm. that um mm. Connected with the athlete and, you know, we, we did. We, we got a job done and we, we did very well. And they well. did well, yeah. And you were with them for a while. I was with them till 2012. Wow. Um, yeah, right. So that coincided with my time at the Western Australian Institute of Sport as well. And what did you do there? At the end of 2008, I submitted my PhD. Mm. Um, so that effectively, I think I submitted on the 23rd of December, um, just in time for Christmas and to, to finish off the year. What did that feel like? Um, I, it was a goal that I set myself. Mm. The last week was, um, I remember quite clearly, I'd, I'd chosen to do my, um, so you have a literature review mm. as part of your PhD mm-hmm. and people kind of spend, um, sometimes people do it at the beginning of their PhD, sometimes people do it at the end of their PhD. And I'd done mine quite early 
and we didn't really come back and address it until the last six months. And I, I remember quite clearly with about two weeks to go, I submitted it through to my supervisor and he just said, sorry, this is crap, you need, to, you need to redo it. So with about two weeks to go until the 23rd of December, I was madly, all the data had been collected and that was all submitted, but I was madly trying to catch up on my literature review. So, but look, I'd set myself a goal of having it submitted before Christmas. Um, Christmas has always been a time for me to switch off for just for mm. one week of the year. Um, so no, there was a big drive to get that done. So felt pretty amazing. Um, and then I went and celebrated in South Asia, Southeast Asia, actually. As you do. As you do, mm. um, which, was, which was awesome for four weeks. And um, then reality hit at the beginning of 2009 that I now didn't have a job. Um, and I, I had a PhD and I didn't have a job. Mm. And so I had a, um, I remember sitting down and having a conversation with my dad and um, he said, well, you know, you need to go on the dole. And I was like, dad, what are you talking about? Like, I have a PhD. I don't go on the dole. Mm. And he said, when I became a medical practitioner, I also didn't have a job and I went in the dole um, back in the UK. And he said, that's what the dole is for. Wow. It's to help you. It's not for the people that have no hope in life. Mm. It's just to help you get on your feet in those first couple of months. So I resigned myself to the fact that um, I was actually going to go on the dole. I'm actually really pleased I did. It was was kind of a good learning experience in itself. Didn't last that long, um, but it was was good nonetheless. Took the opportunity to travel. Um, From memory, I had an incredible ski trip in Canada at the start of 2009. Whilst on the dole. Whilst on the dole. Jesus, can you not see how this is? <laughs> anyway. Went to Africa on safari. Um, whilst on the anyway, doll. Anyway, whilst on the doll. There's a bit of a trend going on. Okay. Um, also did all my PhD corrections. Um, got that all fully submitted. Anyway. To be fair, was- though, while you're doing a PhD, you're not getting paid very much. No. 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 Yeah. I was on a scholarship. Yeah. Um, so I Which was. Which allowing you to eat beans out of a can. And- it was allowing me to eat beans out of a can. Mm. Look, I, I, I didn't do it too tough during my PhD. It was, um, mm. you know, but you're also. You weren't Barnaby Joyce earning 220 grand a year just scraping no, by. No, certainly not that. <laughs> certainly not that. And, um, you know, trying to race Ironmans at the time, they're, um, they're super expensive. <laughs> they, yeah. they actually no take shit. the majority mm. out of you. Mm. Um, but thank God for uni days where you had a, I remember very clearly, $1 bowl of rice from the cafeteria. So I think um, that I last, saved That I last s- yeah, three days, that, that doesn't it? three days and you save your pennies that way. I, I once, um, I, I remember the day before payday back in the 1st Battalion, this is like 1992, and um, had had drank all of my pay the weekend before and it was the day before payday and we and we had no food left in the fridge and we scraped together some small change, Trav and myself, and we went down the fish and chip shop. Actually, it was two days before payday, I remember, and we got a whole heap of fish and chips and then we ate half of it and then we reheated the other half the next night and then the next day, oh, no. we, and then the next day, we went, day we went out for a steak dinner when we got paid. It was like, talk about living from pay to pay and that was an army. I mean, back then it was like $26,000 a year we were earning. Yeah. But it wasn't, it was pretty, pretty dismal. Pretty, pretty poor. Yeah, and you could drink that pretty quick. Mm. I have no doubt. Yeah. We were, we were, I tell people, you know, the early days in the army, we were the most high-performing alcoholics on the face of the earth. I, yeah, you probably were, actually, mm. and you learned what your body's capable of oh, yeah. under, under alcohol. Under absolute – well, it's not even stress. It's, um, you know, just, com- just complete and utter 
sleep yep. deprivation, adrenaline, and abuse. It's just you're just yeah, abusing probably. yourself to probably. the point of running up trig point now, drunk and with no sleep. Yeah, good, good work. <laughs> you can't kill me. Um, so yeah, the whole time you were doing this, you were training and racing in. Um, oh, I don't know, eight Ironmans. Oh, I didn't do them all in one day. No, you know. no, but over of, that, I over spaced a, them out over a over a over a short period of time. I including Kona, just quietly. Anyway, um, start. Let's go from the start. That's a small, small detail. Yeah. Um, the start. Um, goodness, I think the start was actually two thousand. So in two thousand, Sydney obviously hosted the Olympic Games. Um, I guess I was yeah, I was living in Sydney at the time, and I managed to get a job with the Sydney Olympic Organising Committee. Mm. One of my postings was out at the mountain bike course. Mm. Yeah, I had a few different postings. I had a really amazing experience there. The mountain bike one really changed me for two reasons. One, I remember very clearly, I was based at the start line. The gun had already gone. It was a multi-lap course. And the riders were coming, were about to come round for their, I think it was their first lap. And I was looking at the start-finish line, and um, this is no word of a lie, this is true. Mm. And the sun, there was a glint on on the ground in front of me. The sun had caught a metal object Mm. and was shining back in my eye. Mm. And I kind of thought, that's a bit odd. Mm. And when I looked closer at it, it was a tack. Mm. And when I looked, when I used my peripheral vision to look around, there were multiple no, tax. what the hell? Unbelievable. We have absolutely no idea how it happened, um, but I found myself on the start-finish line scrounging around to get all of these tacks off the ground before the riders came through. Yeah. And wow. um, Yeah, still no idea how they got there. Um, obviously, there was one clear reason. Um, yeah, but I think we sabotage. Had, sabotage. You've got, you've got an idea, I would assume. So, um, yeah, or a, managed or to revert. A feast, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And that kind of, I don't know, I guess that sort of, I don't know, for some reason this gave me a new appreciation for bike riding. Um, anyway, I decided that I'd, I'd buy a bike and I'd start riding. So I bought a mountain bike. I started riding around Centennial Park. Hmm. Um, quite soon I started riding with a group. I was on a mountain bike and I was actually doing okay on the mountain bike and, you know, people sort of said, you know, why don't you buy a road bike and just start doing this properly? And I said, look, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just dabbling in this. I'm a better runner and I'm a better swimmer. Mm. So obviously the question was, well, what are you doing this for? Why don't you go mm. into triathlon? Mm. So I sort of thought, okay, oh, yeah, that's not a bad idea. So I signed up for my first triathlon, which was a sprint distance in Cronulla. And had an absolute ball. Absolutely loved it. Mm. But it just wasn't long enough. It was sort of, it was over before I could blink. Yeah. Um, didn't quite have time to get my diesel engine firing. Mm. Um, so I joined a triathlon club and the first race that happened to come up on the calendar was the Foster Half Ironman. Right. So I just sort of thought, look, there's no point beating around the bush here. You yep. Know, Let's just do it. No Olympic stepping stone. No Olympic stepping stone, mm. no. I actually, I've, I think I've actually, funnily enough, only possibly done one Olympic distance mm. race in my whole career. Mm. I shouldn't even call it a career, to be honest. No, it was a... How much athlete a, career? I was a... Oh, if you've done Kona, you've, you've had a career just quietly. No, 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 no. No, I was a... What did I call it? It was a, my professional hobby. Okay. That's what it was. It was mm. my professional yeah. hobby. Yeah, you know, 18 hours a week training for something, yeah. 
20 to 24, yeah, right. something like that. Oh, anyway, did my first half Ironman and, you know, that mm. was it. Mm. Um, mm. I got a bit of a... Um, it's good, isn't it? It's a good feeling. Yeah, it's addictive. Um, mm. It's very addictive mm. and I think there's sort of this, there's this camaraderie mm. as well, which is quite addictive. Mm. But there's also this, um, the realisation that you train together, you train with a group, but when you get on the start line, suddenly it's up to you and yeah. suddenly you've got to do this by yourself. Love it. So back in those days, you had to qualify to mm. race Ironman. Yeah. It wasn't enough just to pay the money and I don't think you can do that, that today. Way. I think you still have to qualify. No, you don't. What? No, for the Australian Ironman. Oh, right. Sorry, I thought you meant Kona. Oh, yep, no, no, got no. It. Kona, yeah. you have to qualify. Mm. Australian Ironman, you just, pay, you just pay the money. So back then, you had to qualify. I think I must have qualified at mm. my first half um, and then suddenly found myself on the start line of my fi- first Ironman. I'd had a, Which was um, where? Foster. Foster as well. Curry. Okay. Yeah, before it moved to port. Yep, okay. Side story, but I remember clearly there was a – I had a phone call the night before the race. So, um, you know, I put my, my little heart and soul were on the line for this race. This was going to be a big deal for me. You know, my beloved bike um, was sitting in the compound with the other sort of 2,000 bikes and I get a call from the race organisers saying, look, we're terribly sorry to inform you, but there's been a break-in at the bike compound. So obviously for an Ironman, you, all of your gear is sitting in transition the night before and they have security monitoring it all overnight. Right. You can imagine, you've got an average of, oh, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting mm. in transition. Oh, and the rest. And I mean, sorry, yeah, way more than that. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, there was... Um, and your bike suddenly became a top-of-the-range Pinarello time trial bike. <laughs> my bike... No, no, no. My bike suddenly wasn't there. Yeah. So my bike, uh, the race organisers called to say, look, we're terribly sorry there's been a Which is why it was a Pinarello top-of-the-range. Which is why it was a Pinarello <laughs> top-of-the-range. <laughs> no, it really was. Yeah. Um, and um, Garmin pedals. Yeah, this news just sort of hit me like an absolute ton. And so, mm. you know, they were like, look, we're really sorry, but you, you know, I, you won't be able to race tomorrow and we'll do what we can to reimburse you. And this went on for a long time and I was getting more and more worked up until I sort of heard this sniggering in the background. And I was like, sorry, hold on, who did you say you are? Oh. And, um, yeah, my mate couldn't hold it together any longer. Oh, my and he, God. Um, oh, I was absolutely ready to demolish him. Anyway. Um, it does sound like one of those stories that's like, what? How would they let that? Your bike of all the bikes? But when, as you get to know me more, you're, I'm incredibly gullible. <laughs> In, like, I should, and I probably shouldn't have told you that, but I'm incredibly awesome. gullible. Uh. Um, so, no, it was simply um, if, if you tell me it happened, then it happened. Mm. And um, anyway, it didn't, thank God. But um, I do remember, so there was a guy that had bought Lance Armstrong's limited edition time trial, time trial trek. And we're talking about a bike back then. It was worth like seven grand alone. Yeah, I know the one. Yep. Yeah, stunning, stunning bike. Anyway, the poor bugger didn't make the swim cut off. <laughs> so, never rode it. Not, never rode it. You've got Lance Armstrong's limited edition time trial trek sitting in transition. Postal service oh, colours. Gosh. Oh yeah, it was it was beautiful. Just sudden, funnily enough, it just didn't seem to have the legs that it had when Lance was. It just didn't quite have the legs. Certainly didn't have the arms that day. Yeah. So anyway, anyway. Um, yeah. So look, Iron Man started. You know, it just kind of started happening. Um, Did you crush that one? No, mm. no, I didn't. I was a vegetarian at the time, mm. actually. Mm. Um, okay, we're just going to end this podcast now. 
Um, <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> anyway, continue. No, that 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 soon changed. Um, yeah. I um I started eating meat, and the second year it took an hour and a half off my time. So that yeah, was, um, correlation, causation. Do you think you're a sports um, scientist? Ah, uh, oh, look. I think there was something there. Yeah. I was definitely anemic and not yeah. fueling myself adequately. Right. And look, we do know nowadays that it's it's you yeah. can race an Ironman and be vegetarian mm. um, if you pay attention to your diet. Mm. Someone so, someone who I have the utmost uh, respect for in this field is a dietitian, and um, she, you know, I've talked to her a bit about it. But one of the things I understand is that we know more about cosmology than we do about dietetics. I think we probably do. Mm. Um, Just because the individual nature of, of diet on, on the on individual. Some people absolutely crush Iron Man as vegans. Totally, totally. Just just not you. Yeah, no, just not me. Look, I, I have no doubt um, just the experience that you gain from doing an Iron Man um, greatly assists a second Iron Man. Um, obviously, you know, my body shape had changed a lot. Mm. Um, you get more efficient just because you've got that many more kilometres in your legs. Um, so, look, there were a whole number of reasons. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, changing to meat, I'm sure, was just, just one of them. Yep. But certainly a good feeling to take an hour mm. and a half off, oh, off yeah. your first time. All right. What's, okay, what was your best time for an Ironman? Let's do it. Come on. No, you know it. Um, Let's just throw I, it out there. Do I know it? No. I th- well... Funnily enough, I've actually just – I've only just had all my Ironman medals um, showcased. Yeah. Um, it took me a while to find where they all yeah, were between yeah. the different states. Um, I, I, I think it was 10.39. Okay. 10.39. Legit. And I think mm. that was done at Port. Okay. And Kona was um, – how was Kona? Kona Let's talk about – no, Hang on a second. Let me, tell, let me ask you this. Darkest moment on Kona. Well – Look, on the whole, Kona was a pretty good race. I'd qualified for Kona in New Zealand and kind of I was a bit um, I was a bit disappointed with how I qualified, if that makes sense. I had – usually you're supposed to have your best race ever to qualify for Kona. Right. I actually – I didn't have a great race in New Zealand, but I managed to place third in my age group. One girl didn't take her spot and so it rolled down to me. Um, and obviously, look, I did take it, and we had all four of my closest buddies, three other guys and myself, all four of us qualified for Kona, so that was that was super special. Kona was a – I mean, it was – look, it was another – it's another dimension. Did you, did you have in the back of your mind that you had a soft entry to Kona and therefore you, that mindset was you had to go all the harder in preparation for it? I think it probably was, to be honest. Um, yeah. I, you know, I was I had geared myself up to have an amazing race in New Zealand, and it just it just didn't happen. Nothing to uh, the course is stunning. Um, swimming in Lake Taupo is absolutely incredible. It's an inverted volcano. Uh, the water's crystal clear. It's it's you know it's it's really beautiful. I just didn't have the day um, that I was hoping to have, so I was a little bit disappointed with that. And once I got to Kona. Um, I mean, conditions are hard. You know, you get off the plane and it's hot and it is humid. And I remember about we we landed about eight days before the race and about six days before the race, my coach, Ben Larson at the time in Sydney, um, he had me running about 10Ks through the energy lab. And I was like, I didn't have a good run and I was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Like, this is brutal. It's absolutely brutal. 
And he said, it's, you know, you've just, it's acclimatisation, it's getting used to, I mean, you're walking around. The beauty with Ironman is that you, you race alongside the professionals. You know, all of my Ironman idols were in slacks and thongs down the street. It was, you know, it's Amazing. incredible. Um, and he said, look, we're going we're gonna to do this same run in four days' time. We're going to do exactly the same run in four Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Four days time, um, and that will be your benchmark as to, as to how you're going to go. Yeah. Um, so I can I see that. Like, I can see that. You know, I told you I was going to do a, an ultra this this Saturday. Yes. And I last week I ran twenty k's, a ten k, and a ten k. You did. The day after you and I had coffee, I went for a five k. I went for a ten k run. Okay. Managed five k's. Yep. And then walked home with a um, iced chocolate on the way because I was done. Because <laughs> right. I'd reached my and my brain couldn't make me run because I'd, I'd I'd reached my weekly limit. Okay. For where I am at present. Yep. And suddenly what felt like on Saturday is going to be an ultra, I'm just going to crush this, is like, holy shit, dude. So you are still doing it? Hell no. Oh, good. No, All I'm right. taking the kids to sport. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um, anyway. Look, there are some, you know, there are some, I know if you told me to swim to Rottnest Island tomorrow, I could swim to Rottnest Island tomorrow. Wow. It wouldn't be pretty. No, um, that's interesting you say that because um, I'm a, I've told you I'm a good swimmer, averaged swimmer, you told me after I told you my times, but I feel like I'm a good swimmer. But interestingly, I need to be really fit to be a good swimmer. I, I couldn't just go do. and chuck that up personally. But, yeah. but if, I to, if you said to me, can you run 100 miles, I'd be like, I'll run 100 miles. So that's the difference there. Hmm. So I couldn't do a marathon tomorrow, hmm. but I could swim to Rottnest tomorrow. Isn't that interesting? Sports science. Tell me, how's that? How's that working? Is it just we're different body types? We're different. Is it? Is it? Or is it mental for that particular sport? There's a big mental thing there as well, for sure. Yeah. Um, I also haven't run in a very long time. Um, one of my toes has decided to, um, to to not play ball. It's a it's a pretty lame excuse for a runner, to be honest. But um, I haven't actually run for five years, mm. like a, a very very long time. Wow. Um, so I wouldn't really be confident in my ability to run 5Ks at the moment in any type of a, 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 a format that would allow me to survive it. Let's just, let's just ruminate over that. You've done eight Ironman races, one of them being Kona, and you wouldn't be happy right now running 5K. That, that speaks a lot to specificity of training and actually conditioning, doesn't it? Hugely. Absolutely, hugely, and look, the you know the impact on the body of running is is substantial. I did Rottnest, don't forget, um, solo in twenty seventeen, so not not too long ago, not too too long ago. Mm. Um, and you've done that twice. I've done a solo twice. Yeah, how many yeah. times have you done the race then? Well, the first one I don't even know if you'd call it the first one. I didn't do inside the the actual event. The first time I did the solo crossing, I just 
did it by myself. Yeah, you, you were just walking along the beach, saw all these people going to the water, you're like, oh, fuck it, I'll do that. And then you got in with them and started swimming, is that what happened? Well, no, it was, kind of, it was actually even worse than that. I, I just, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I thought I entered the event and somehow my entry didn't go through. <laughs> so I sort of thought, look, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it anyway. So I contacted the organiser. I did it legitimately because there is a channel there mm. that you have to make sure is clear. And I said, look, is there any chance that I can just swim across? Mm. And they said, look, ideally we need to have a few other people in there with you. So somehow there were about six of us at the time that you all had to – we didn't have to have paddlers for some reason, but we had to have a boat each. Mm. And I found a – in fact, how I found the boat was quite funny, but we'll get to that. Um, anyway, I found this boat – and, um, I, you know, I lost the other people very soon after I entered. So it was literally just me swimming next to a boat and the boat just had a skipper. There was no other support crew there. There's people who aren't from Perth listening to this. How far is it from Cottesloe to Rottnest? It's not 20 k's, so I'm not going to claim that. I think it's 19.7. Yeah, 19. it's crazy. 19.7 k's. Of swimming? Of swimming. Just crack on. Just crack on. How many hours a week do you need to train to be able to swim, let's say, 20 k? Across open water? Depends how quick you want to do it. Um, I Yeah, I learned a pretty big lesson doing my training for my second one um, because I did the majority of my training in the pool and I don't think I did enough training mm. in the open water. Yeah. Specificity of training, physiologist mm. kind of should know this stuff. Yeah. Um, didn't quite get that one right. Mm. Um, so, look, when you're not trying to go for a time, that changes the game a lot. So if I was trying to do the swim in under five hours, there's a substantial amount of training that needs to happen. Um, at the time, I had no idea what this swim was supposed to take me. I'd, I'd done some training for it, but my mind was always going to kind of get me through. Wow. Um, mm. and, and funnily enough, the mental became the hardest thing um, Rotnest and anyone listening who has done Rotnest will testify that it's um, when you're in the water yourself and even when you've got five kilometres to go, Rottnest appears so much bigger than it actually is. And um, it just it's incredible as to how far away you still are at 5Ks, if My that makes sense. Oh, God, yes, it does. As a, as, a, as a swimmer who's done a four-kilometre swim as my max in open water, I can only imagine <laughs> that 20 is... Um, so... Would you say, Sasha, would you say you're mentally tough? Um, again, I'm sitting next to her. I'm sitting across from a guy that's, that's fought for our country in, in wars. And um, so, no, I don't say that I'm mentally mm. tough. Wasn't the um, question, though. But would you say you're <laughs> mentally – would you say that you draw on something from a resilience point in these races? Yeah, look, I do. I draw on something. Um, probably still working out exactly what that is. Um, it's a little bit of that just never say die, never give up. Um, and as a sports scientist, you're talking about there is something there. I'm wondering, do you think people can develop that or do you think that is an innate quality that we need to find if you've got it? There's also a difference, I think, between races, you know, those people that can actually really race and those people that can kind of just be mentally tough. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm not good enough to be a pure racer. I, I simply don't have – I mean, I can take myself into the lab tomorrow and, and, and show myself and, and the rest of the world that I'm, I'm never destined to be an amazing athlete. 
Um, but I know I have a pretty good idea of what I am capable of. And if tomorrow was simply get to Rottnest Island and swim it, I, I 100% know that I could do that. Is that because you've got a frame of reference to get to Rottnest Island that you can draw on? Or is it, or have you built a frame of reference that's worse than that swim? Or is there something that's happened in your life that's allowed you to have a frame of reference and a, percep- a perception and go, or a perspective and go, well, this isn't that bad? I think it's probably a combination of all three. I mean, for sure, I've done it before, so I have an idea of. Yeah, I think it was a leading question. (laughs) You're right. It is a combination of those three. It's perspective. It's um, having people around you that have also done it and you're with them, so you can draw strength from that. And probably a frame of reference from I've done something similar, I can get through this. Um, What could go wrong? You could get eaten by a shark. You could get eaten by a shark. It's unlikely. It's more likely that. I'd run out of mm. glycogen and bomb out or, mm. you know, my shoulders would start screaming at me that, no, this isn't a good idea. Yeah. Um, you know, but still in regards to the, the toll that it would take on my body is not nearly as harsh as running a marathon tomorrow, which is unachievable. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's interesting because if you gave me the option of those two... You'd still take... Oh, 100% I'd go for the marathon because I'd finish it. Well, Whereas I'd probably drown halfway across to Rottnest Island. If you gave me a... Um, do you remember the book, Would You Rather? <laughs> yes. I'm laugh- okay. A lot of people are laughing right now because it's an, uh, a very army thing that we do. But anyway, go on. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah I'm not even going to go there. No, you better not, actually. You better not if it's army related. Anyway, if you gave me the question, would you rather run a marathon tomorrow or complete an Ironman tomorrow... I'd opt for the Ironman over the marathon. So would I. Despite the fact that there is a marathon at the end of the Ironman. Yeah. Um, but it comes but di- that's different though because for me yep. that's like if I'm running a marathon, I'm almost racing a marathon. Exactly. If I'm doing an Ironman, it's a huge spiritual journey to get to the fucking end of something that seems <laughs> almost unachievable and totally. I will take that challenge. But if you said to me, would you rather – swim to Rottnest or do an Ironman, I'm still doing an Ironman. If you said to me, would you rather swim to Rottnest or do that crazy Ironman they do up in Iceland, I'm at the Ironman. <laughs> There's not much getting me swimming 20Ks. Yeah, see, it's just it's so much more um, appealing to me. Maybe, it's, I don't know, now is any different. As I said, I've got a bit of, you know, swimming. I'm also, I feel very close to swimming now. You know, I've done... Um, I've done my PhD with Paralympic swimmers. Um, I've done a huge journey with a number of Olympic swimmers. Um, mm. So I sort of feel like, um, you know, I've almost got this all of the skill and all the fitness and the determination of all of the swimmers that I've worked with. So rewarding. I've got it all. Mm. You know, I've got that in me. I mean, when I – so Blair Evans is um, has been yeah. one of my idols in, a, in a, a Western Australian swimming since I moved here. Um, and she's just got this the most beautiful freestyle, um, incredible technique. And um, whenever I swim in the pool, even now, I just pretend I've got her same technique. And I'm usually, you know, thinking, oh, people must be watching my stroke going, God, she looks like Blair Evans. And um, They're definitely <laughs> doing that. They're definitely <laughs> doing that. Of course I don't. Nothing, nothing like but I can kid myself into thinking that I do. What was the um, most inspirational thing you saw one of the Paralympic swimmers do? Goodness. Um, oh, just such an incredible group of athletes there. 
possibly um, just oh, look many 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 one that springs to mind Ben Austin um, was one of our S8s and an arm amputee mm. um, and he swam I want to say 101 oh. 101 for 100 meters freestyle yeah. crikey um, uh, which you know that's where the word disability doesn't work for these guys oh my god because there's no disability there there's an Absolutely unbelievable ability. And um, look, as I said, one, one of many. That is like world class, really, isn't it? That's bloody. Look. Going under a minute for 100 is, you know, it, it, I mean, it's not like, look, like it's not Olympic standard, put, but yep, it's still, still you're still winning club championships at, at with, that. With, um, you know, so no, look, of course it wouldn't make the Olympic final. Yeah. Um, but he's not trying to be an Olympian. He no. was trying to be a Paralympian. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, an arm amputee, I mean, where swimming is, and freestyle especially, is pretty well yeah. 70% upper body and 20, yeah. 30% legs. Um, but for him, it's not. It's different, isn't it? It's a different. He's doing something different with his legs. He's pushing harder. He's pulling differently. He had, look, he had an incredible kick. Yeah. Really, really, really awesome. amazing kick. Um, and, um, yeah, just, obvious, you know, um, and quite an incredible arm action there. And, um, I, I mean, that's, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, very, really, really impressive. impressive. Yeah. So, but all of the, um, you know, the opportunity to mix with the, the world of disability swimming and see, see what really is out there. Um, there are, you know, there are just some... Are just absolutely inspirational performances. So we've got a um, yeah a couple of WA swimmers, um, Katrina Porter, who's won a gold medal at, at Paralympic Games in in hundred meter backstroke. Um, Jeremy McClure, who's still racing and pushing on for another Paralympic Games for next year. Um, you know these guys are um, yeah. There's no kind of there's no disability there. It's this um, yeah. this incredible will and want. That's all, that's awesome, and and yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine the work ethic that must go into that as well, and it would be no different than what the the normal able bodied team would be. Absolutely no different, no, totally mm. the same. Um, and um, you know, it's usually just um, you know working out where can we where can we be smarter, where can we be different, um, and um, yeah. If you, um, yeah, watch the Paralympic Games and some of those, um, especially some of the disabilities that are out there. I mean, we didn't have, there was a, there was a Chinese guy who I think when we were in London, we didn't have, when I was on the team, we didn't have a double arm amputee, um, but China did. Um, wow. So double arm amputee and, um, you know, this guy tied his own shoelaces, ate his own meals. Oh, my goodness. Um, used his feet in incredible ways um so you know you if you don't have it you work it out as yeah, well yeah um that's amazing yeah really incredible right so, so oh, not to not to make light of that but um because that's incredible uh but eight iron man one of them kona rottenest island twice you know the only thing you really haven't done is like something like the camino <laughs> oh sorry you've done that too of course of course so what's that 1700 kilometers of walking? Um, the Camino is as long as you want to make it. Nice um, answer. Or as short as you want to make it. Um, yeah, when I did it, I didn't, 
I didn't. And so I'm obviously jealous at a spiritual level here, and you know that. So that's I why do. I raised it. So I do. okay, so you went over there to to for whatever reason, because everyone goes there to either run from something or to or to run to something or uh-huh. both. Um, the Camino de Santiago starts somewhere in France, anywhere in Europe, yeah, and anywhere ends up in, in Santiago in Spain. Correct. Um, and roughly, it's roughly seventeen hundred kilometers from start to finish, depending on where you start. There is no real start, and it and it is the trail of the um. How would you describe it? Pilgrim. The pilgrim. The pilgrim's mm-hmm. trail. What it's called? The pilgrim's trail, actually, isn't it? Um, pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. It, right. uh, it was a pilgrim trail. Yeah. Um, so pilgrims used to make this journey um, back in the dark ages, and um, it has. It's gone on to be a massive tourist attraction as well, but also a, a hugely spiritual event for, for those that undertake it. Most people would um, not necessarily train for the event, but plan it, book it, know that it's coming up. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it just, it just, it just, I first heard about it a few years ago where a veteran who had PTSD was talking about it on a podcast that I was one of the hosts of, an American podcast. And I remember thinking at the time, it just, it sparked something in me. And it's because it's just this walk. And, and anyone who's been in the army will know that when you've got a pack on your back and you just start walking, suddenly shit becomes very, very, very real. And all of your life's worries become that blister and not not all the other stuff and it's there now for me it's out there i know it's there yeah yes i I mean it's really interesting the number of people that this kind of story i guess has resonated with um and there are a huge number of people out there that are you know they're 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 really wanting to do the camino and i just now i can look back at it and see i was so grateful to have the time Actually, to do it because that tends to be the biggest thing is you don't often get to have that that time in life. You know, you're a husband, you're a father, you're a brother, you're a mother, you're a father. You, you know, you don't. You've got commitments, and suddenly I hit this sort of point in my life where I I didn't have these commitments, and I was able to to gallivant off and and do this 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 journey. Did the um, universe say to you, "Here's three months, crack on"? Look, I think it. I mean, it simply did. Um, I was supposed to go with someone at the time. Um, they pulled out the night before we were due to leave, so I decided to go anyway. And that and was for, that was a fortuitous thing, anyway, wasn't it? They completely. didn't mean to to no, no, pull no. out. It just their life circumstances changed that night. That night, which meant you were there by yourself. You can see how all this stuff starts to become spiritual and universe directed. <laughs> Absolutely, and it all adds plus. When you understand why you're going there in the first place, it um, absolutely it does. So you're this short, tanned, blonde Australian girl hey, at the start. Short. Well, you're not that tall. I'm, well, you're That's shorter true. than me, and and you're standing at the start of the Camino by yourself. Well, That's bravery. Uh, I technically, I think I even missed the start point. You're supposed oh. to go to the cathedral and sign your book in. You're supposed to have a pilgrim's passport. Um, so I didn't. I failed to get a pilgrim's passport through France. There's a, there's a, there seems to be a trend in this shit. <laughs> I'm just going to rock up and do the rot nest. I'm going to rock up and do the Camino. Yeah, it was a little bit. And, I mean, I feel a bit, look, I didn't prepare, actually. I didn't prepare for the Camino. Sorry, can we just go back one step? What's your business called? My business is called Peak Preparation. Okay, continue. Um, Continue, all right. Again, there's a reason. There's a reason for all of this. 
So look, the Camino, um, you know, I started on a glorious sunny day in France. Um, I didn't have, I had many, many, many worries. I didn't realise them at the time. Um, I had a, I had a 10 kilo pack on my back um, and I, I started walking um, and it was, you know, just a simple case of enjoying the, the countryside. But it became apparent after a few days that this wasn't just going to be a walk. You know, this was going awesome. to be something a little bit different. And whilst I might have thought at the start that I was only going to walk for kind of a couple of weeks, it, it certainly it became apparent very quickly that I wasn't going to be going home until my head was in the place that it needed to be. Does it start getting hard real quick? Um, it... Starts getting hard mentally when you stop having distractions around you and you have time and space and distance to reflect on what has been and what might be coming. You have just terrified half of the listening audience that are Gen Gen Zs and Millennials because they've never had time without a distraction time without and I, and I don't I don't mean any disrespect at all obviously I grew up in a, in a period where you used to be alone a lot and think a lot and and not have any distractions so I know what that's like I actually I actually look forward to that now but there's people out there who've been have stimulation 24 7 and don't know what it's like and and it and it terrifies them yeah that's interesting um I had um I had a lot of cows along the way um, I talked to them quite a lot. Um, but you, look, I wasn't um, – there's also – I wasn't following a map. I wasn't following an app on my phone. Um, I was following, you know, a red and white slash on a corner post on a tree. Um, it was it was well signposted, but, but I made a point of not um, – I, I didn't want to. I, I trusted in the Camino, actually. I put my trust in – that if I put one foot in front of the other, if I got up in the morning, if I put my pack on my back, if I followed these signs, I would reach my destination at the end of the day. And sure enough, I did. Because millions of people throughout history have done that pilgrim's walk and they've ended up in the same place. Exactly. But it also became apparent that that is all I have to do every single day. That, that was your new job. That was my new job. Crazy. And it's and it's I still apply it today. Get up in the morning, put your shoes on, follow the sign, and you'll reach your destination. Great advice. And what I realized was that for a very long time I'd been getting up in the morning, but I hadn't been following the signs. Mm. And there'd been a lot of signs. Right. Big red signs telling me to turn around and mm. go back. And I walk through every single one of them. Most of us do. Most of us do. Mm. Um, and that's where, you know, distraction of mobile phones, technology, not having time and space comes into play. And we don't actually follow the signs. And honestly, I could, I mean, I could go back in time. I won't now, but I could pinpoint every single sign that came up to say, you're going the wrong way. Mm. And life tried. It mm. tried mm. desperately hard to tell me. Mm. Um, until it all came crescendoing, crashing down within a six-month period. Mm. And um, I, yeah, found myself on the Camino following paint red on the side of a road. Red and white signs. Red um, and white signs. Best meal on the Camino? 
Oh my gosh, best meal on the Camino. Definitely paella in Spain with the sangria. Hell yeah. Oh, unbelievable. We're doing this again? Am I, are we going to go Let's and do, do this? It. Yeah, I'm going to bring some Let's people. Let's go and do it. We should make a business out of it. You could make a you, – you, you, you could do well. You could do very well. Mm. You can bike it. Um, you can ride it. There were, there were horse riders out there as well. I think Can you race it? You probably would want to. I would. And I, and I want to tell you that that would kind of take some of the spiritualness yeah. away. I think I'd like to just walk it. And, and, I'm, and I'd say I'd take a video camera, but I wouldn't take a phone. I have a – I'll show you after this. Mm. There's um, um, a good friend of mine, an Italian guy. He put together a, um, a, a video mm. a video snippet of the mm. Camino, mm. which is very powerful actually in itself. Yeah. But I think, look, actually where, look, where the power comes from, if you like, are the people that you meet along the way, these random meetings, nothing's planned, um, you suddenly find yourself walking next to – a German man who you've never met in your life before um, doesn't speak particularly good English, but you keep each other company for 40 kilometres through the Spanish meseta. Wow. And it's 40 degrees and there's, you know, big... There was one 20-kilometre gap between towns where there was simply nothing but a straight road in front of us. Is there, a, is there a point where you get to Santiago where you're like, right, oh, and then you realise that the journey was the was really the end state? 100%. Or is that – if I say that, does that wreck it for people who want to do it? No, look, it doesn't. I'm just, going, I'm just walking this in my mind. It's, it's everybody's it's, – it's your own journey, mm. and I thought something particularly special. Look, there were a number of points along the way for me. So as I said, it became a forest gump for me. I, I just simply kept on walking. So reaching um, St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port mm. became one goal. So I'm just going to walk through France and then I'm going home. And I got to St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port and suddenly the Pyrenees are in front of me and I... I can go over them. I can go over them. Jesus. You know? And, and I love look, this. Don't, don't forget, this has also mm. been my... I mean, I remember I've only raced one marathon, one standalone marathon. Mm. And that was probably the hardest thing I've ever done, way harder than any Ironman. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean... Are I, you a sub... You're not a sub-three-hour marathoner? Not even no. close. Yeah. No. I went... Um, I think I went 3.45. Yeah, sorry, I'm not trying to... You know, <laughs> I, and I, I hate people that do that, and you know I don't generally no, do that, but don't. I'm trying to put it into don't. context. No, like it's not. put it into context. You know, if you're a sub-three-hour marathoner or a three-hour marathoner, you're a legit runner. Oh, Incredible. Yeah, and yeah. and a four. I mean, four hours is still under four hours. Is I never cracked four hours off an Ironman. Yeah. I was I was always a bit disappointed with that. I still think Hawaii was my quickest. What's that? Run. F- uh, six minute? Is that six minute? That's uh, no, it's no, faster than faster, that. Five and a half. That's still bloody moving. That's faster than I'll ever do it. It's For sure. Um, no, no. You'd yeah, know. I'm a five fifteen average, but that will. That will end pretty quickly after about twenty k. That's done, fifteen twenty k, and that's yeah, training. Yeah, haven't trained properly. True, I haven't so, trained properly. Yeah. I mean, who, what would I know? I, I sort of need a sports scientist to, to throw a bring it all together and you know yeah. do well. Um. <laughs> did did the idea for the um, peakperformance.com.au? dot com dot au? Peak 
Peakpreparation.com.au. Edit that out. Did the idea for peakpreparation.com.au come from the Camino? I think it was born along the Camino. I think it was. Um, Not that I prepared for the Camino, but um, it was a culmination of my life events that I suddenly realised led me to that is what I was going to do. Right. And I was going to put that in place and that was going to become – it was going to become my business, but it was going to become a place where I – something that I could be passionate about and something that I could own. And so what, what is um, peak preparation – what does peak preparation do? What do, you, what do you do as part of that? So I'm a sports scientist. I work with WA's elite and sub-elite athletes, but I'm also finding that I've got a which is Which is how we met because obviously I'm the sub-elite. Anyway, continue. No, you're one of you're going to be one of the elite. You, <laughs> yeah. just, you just don't know what's inside yourself yet. Right, let's do this. Um, oh, I do. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, um, uh, yeah, this business is look, it's continuing to grow and develop and morph along the way. There's a huge amount of education that I know that I can give and install, instill into into people. Um, I'm enjoying the work that I'm doing in schools. At the moment, I have a contract with the Australian Synchronised Swimming Team. Um, I'm working with the Harry Perkins Institute and writing a program for their MACA 200 Cancer Ride for Research, which is coming up in wow. October. Yeah, cool. Um, and I'd, you know, I'm looking to to start branching out and into corporate, into the corporate world, and mm. see what I can have to give there. Mm. So it's, it's morphing and changing along the way, um, yeah. but always trying to stay true to my roots um, as a sports scientist and as an, as an educator in that space. Yeah, I was talking, I, I reached out to some friends last night and said, hey, I know this person, she's a sports scientist, has a PhD in the following. Perhaps she could do a study of what you guys do at work from a performance perspective and see if it is the most optimal way for you to go, you know, studying things like heart rate variability, um, the interaction of nutrition, sleep, and then, but you, I mean, because you don't go and write someone a, a Kona training program. That's not what you do. That's what a coach does. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you could do that, but you'd be. I could do that. Throw a lot of money at that. But it's um, it's more the science behind the coaching, right? If you like. Yeah. So it's the it's the it's the strategies of optimizing your nutrition, your training loads, your recovery space, your tapering. Um, Ironman triathletes tend to be renowned for doing too much training um, and not knowing when to back things off. If I was going to train for another Ironman, I'd actually do it very differently. Would you? Um, would you really? Yeah, I would. I would. Mm. There's a certain amount of volume that needs to happen. Yes. Um, you know, it is a – it's um, you're going to have to accept that as well. I know. I tried to do the whole, as you know, as you know, I tried to do the whole um, Olympic distance on sprint training and found myself wanting in the last couple of uh, kilometres, actually in the swim. Um, Desperately anyway, yeah. wanting some more volume in your training. Yeah, right? needed the volumes very fast out of the blocks. Um, you know, even in the half Ironman I attempted on, on sprint training just wasn't, and I mean high volume high intensity interval training for what it was but it's not the same as long slow distance and all of all of that sort of i guess it's mitochondria in some regards i guess it's a whole heap of blood oxygenation over time it's efficiency um, yeah. and it's building up that that efficiency that ability to mm. be efficient with mm. utilizing oxygen takes 
mm. takes time to build up. Mm. So there is a certain base that that is necessary, but at the same time, which which goes to show, as you know, the other day I just went and chucked up a twenty k, mm. uh, uh, and have done no run training in two years, and that for me was not a big deal. But I've got huge amounts of volume in running behind me. Exactly. But um, but if I went to go chuck up an Ironman fast, which is what I, which is what ultimately is the goal is to finish it in the best time possible actually if no one anyone who says it isn't the goal it is the goal um and then you go out hard in the swim and you haven't been doing you know five kilometers worth of swimming a week and instead you've been doing two and a half kilometers and they've been in a 25 meter pool and they've been at speed with tumble turns which means you're actually which means you've actually been swimming underwater for <laughs> for a kilometer. Totally. You now get into a chop and try and survive that for four K plus Absolutely. And, and it's a different game. It's a completely different game. And I mean the swim as part of an Ironman or a half iron leg, half Ironman leg, it's taxing not just from the distance. The distance is actually relatively short compared to the rest of the race. Yeah. But it's it's intense. You've got a thousand people racing at the same time. Yeah, it's You've a metabolic it's a metabolic fuck fight. Totally. Because you can be Do you have you to can, edit that out? No, I don't, it's good, it's explicit. Okay. You can um, swear as much as you want here. Because you, you because you go um there's parts of it I found where I've done some sprint triathlons where I've come out of the water in the in the top two or three. First, actually, on one of them, as I recall, and um, and that had less impact on me, even though I went really hard, than the Ironman I did in two thousand fourteen, half Ironman did in two thousand fourteen, because of the the fighting for position Absolutely. where I went where I went lacta- lactate a couple of bits because I sprinted a few bits rather than a- aerobic. Totally. And that changes your race. Yeah, it does. Yeah, that changes um, the next four and a half hours, five hours. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's, you, you know, you suddenly got, I mean, you've got guys literally on top of you. Um, you're trying to, you are, you're trying to fight your way through to some clear water. The first few hundred metres in any of your open water swims um, as well, and as well as your half Ironmans and your Ironmans, it's a complete... It's almost impossible not to be lactic yeah. in those first. I try and explain this to guys doing special forces selection that the three point two that you've trained for with webbing and rifle, the three point two kilometer run which you have to do in under in under sixteen minutes, under sixteen thirty for one aspect, quick run, okay. carrying yeah. carrying uh, seven kilograms, I think it is yep. of webbing. So it's a far, it's hard work, yep. and it's a precursor to. Um, oh, there's, SAS guys going over the top of us now in helicopters. <laughs> right on, um, right on and the precursor, it's a precursor for the 20-kilometre route march. But anyway, it's a whole other story. I tell them, run it like you've trained to run it because what happens is they all line up on the start line together and it becomes a race as opposed to when they're going to train for it, they can do it. But when you go, when you run that first 50 metres of a 3.2 and you go and, 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 and you run it as hard as you can for position – and you use lactate for fuel, as a lactate as a fuel source, right? So you're burning, 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 or making lactate, burning lactate, whatever you want to call it. Instead of using oxygen as a fuel source, you've now you now have to come down off that and then find and find your steady state, and you can never get into a rhythm, and you and you and you fail the run. Absolutely. And I've seen guys yeah. fail that that should pass it. Totally. 
And I mean, it's a, and I mean, we're talking people when they come up, to, when they step up to the line, there they're only passing it in training by about five to ten seconds, but they can do it every time. The minute they get into a, a training, into a competition sense, and they sprint it out when they're carrying that weight, it's like doing twenty thrusters. Yes. Right. You try and do twenty thrusters and then go for a three point two kilometer run. Guys, listen to what I'm saying. I tell you this over <laughs> and over again. You all think it has to be a race. It doesn't have to be a race. You just have to be. You just have to do it in the time. Just, you, know, you know, you don't have to win the warm up. Absolutely, we've got a um, in surf life. There's a um, when you go and you do your bronze medallion. There's a run swim run um, that's part of your training, and it's a um, what is it? It's a it's a one kilometer run and a one kilometer swim, one kilometer run, something like that. You've got nine minutes to do it in, and um, people go off like a bull at a gate in that first. No, it can't be that fast. It's got to be. I'm doing the maths. It can't be. It's more time than that, surely. Um, then it's, um, hold on, what is it? Let's edit this out. It's we'll got to edit be. this out and find out exactly what it is. It's. So there's a run, swim, run. It's a run, swim, run. Yeah. You have to do for your bronze medallion. Yeah. Um, so soft sand, running, obviously, ocean. A kilometre run. Um, maybe it's not even that far. Yeah, right. Might be 400 metres or something like that. Actually, I think it is. It must yeah. be 400 metres. It's a longer swim, like a 700 metre swim, and yeah. the same run at the back. Yeah, maybe it is not. But I think it's only it's only nine minutes. That makes sense then, because you wouldn't... Um, you do It's the actually a substantial amount of time. Like I think yeah. I did it in six minutes or something. So yeah. it's a substantial amount of time. Yeah. But it freaks a lot of people out. Yeah. And... It's also that it's transitioning. You do that first 400 hard and then you're done. And suddenly you're going, so you're going from soft sand running mm. using your legs, which is vertical, to then a horizontal mm. activity, which is using your upper body, where you quickly go into oxygen debt because you've got your head underwater and you go hypoxic for right. the majority of time. Yeah. The physiology that changes just between doing the transition, same as the individual medley in the pool. I don't think a lot of people appreciate what happens, mm. the physiology that changes ah. when you go from butterfly to backstroke to breaststroke I to get, freestyle. I get fit fast. The fastest I can get myself fit is by doing run, swim, run training three times a week. It just it completely changes the ball game for me. There's nothing else I can do that will get me fitter faster. And it does, but it's still specificity of training. Mm. So it's not going to get you fit for the 50K that you want to do on Saturday. No, that's mental. Um, <laughs> that that's, is, just, that's, just me. That that's just David Goggins' go. Mental. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, it is a method of training that can – but as well, you, you know, quantifying what fitness I is. I guess – well, yeah, okay, we do, that a mil- we do that every time I do this podcast, what is fitness. Um, for that, what I'm saying then, I guess, is – Run, swim, run gets my VO2 max up faster than any other type of training that I can do. It definitely contributes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and it is a lot of that becomes that transition space, mm. that changing of energy systems, changing of blood pressures. Mm. Um, you know, the body, as I said, going from vertical to horizontal makes a huge difference mm. using the upper body compared to the lower body, being in a water environment compared to a land environment, so many different things. Do we have to have do we have to have challenges to be human, do you think? Unfortunately, life on the whole for the first world countries has become so incredibly easy and so incredibly boring that we actually dream up these ridiculous challenges as something to do. 
like an Ironman. Like an Ironman, like climbing the highest mountain in the world, like crossing the longest river or the longest ocean by swimming it. We don't do these things because we're battling day-to-day life of where our next meal is coming from or third world countries don't do these events. What a damning assessment of humanity. <laughs> it is. Yeah. But it's it's the truth. Mm. Um, and it's something that we also need to we need to accept and understand. Mm. I mean, you know, people in third world countries aren't going to the gym every morning. No. Why would you possibly put yourself under any other exertion when you're battling exactly. just to survive? Exactly. Uh, Dr. Sasha Fulton, I want to thank you for being on the Warrior You podcast. Where can people find out more about you? So on my website, um, www.peakpreparation.com.au, as well as all the social media channels. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ciao.